0: Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Coming up on today's program... We're going to look at uh, some of the protests that are going on around the United States. Some of them are against uh, the current gun laws, others are against the perception of police brutality. And we have a really interesting write up from uh, several years ago uh, about protests and uh, exactly uh, what God's perspective is on that type of activity. We're going to get to that and plenty more in this edition of Trumpet Radio Live. This is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG. And we're online, too, at a couple of places, kpcg.fm. And there's a live link at thetrumpet.com as well. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at kpcg.fm. And if you'd like to email us, go ahead and send those Comments, questions, or anything else you'd like to send to uh, comments at kpcg.fm. I'm Dwight Falk with you here today, and uh, we had a really interesting write-up sent in from a listener the other day, uh, quite long talking. It was from it was from the Plain Truth magazine from years ago, back in the uh, height of the, uh, I guess, the, the protests of the 1960s, and uh, it was really fascinating to see what the young people of that time were doing and how they were protesting and what the uh, response was to it because there was a lot of, uh, of course, controversy. How should people respond? How should they act? Should they be protesting? Should they be out there uh, doing those types of things? So in the current climate we're in with a lot of protesting, uh, the listener thought it would be uh, a good a good uh, article to look at, and uh, I agree. So we're going to take a look at that coming up uh, later in the program as there are ongoing uh, protests happening, the March for Our Lives, I believe. That's the uh, student protest about guns. And then also there's... a uh, some more riots out in California, or protests, I guess. I don't know if they've gone to the po- uh, to the point of riots, but they're protests anyway, about a, a recent uh, shooting out there by police. So uh, we'll take a look at that later in uh, the program today. A couple of notes to uh, start. This one's just kind of an interesting number I thought you might find interesting. You might have heard of the uh, Global Seed Vault in uh, Norway. That's where they keep all the seeds, I guess, uh, in case we need them again at some point to grow food, and uh, they added 70,000 additional crops to the project's storage chambers, and there's a total of 1,059,646, that's the number of seeds, in the global seed vault. So I I think that's just like an emergency vault from what I understand, in case uh, for some reason we run out of all the seeds that are out there and they need something else, Uh, There's that global seed vault, so uh, quite a few, quite a few out there, kind of an interesting number. There's a uh, write-up here that's uh, a little bit interesting, too. Uh, I was talking about uh, Billy Graham. Of course, he died recently. And uh, there's a section there just talking about the state of religion today in America, some interesting numbers. And it says the American religious landscape was changing in uh, Billy Graham's final decade of course, when he rose to uh, preeminence and a lot of influence, it was a different time in the country. But they say more than a third of millennials identify as religiously unaffiliated, more than any previous generation. And there's a write-up at thetrumpet.com about that from a while ago. They called it the uh, the rise of the nuns, and not not the nuns as in the uh, Catholic nuns, but as in they just don't have a religion, they don't have an affiliation. A lot of uh, a lot of those people say they're spiritual but not religious, so they have some other form of uh, of spirituality, they think. But only 41% of millennials say religion is very important to them. That's compared with 72% from uh, the greatest generation, that World War II uh, generation. The youngest evangelicals are increasingly diverse and more open to uh, same-sex marriage than their elders were. Uh, at the same time, and perhaps in response, the, uh, their parents and those uh, that are older have dug in on their beliefs. Uh, Billy Graham's alma mater, the Evangelical Wheaton College in Illinois, made national headlines in recent years, not for spiritual revival, but for opposition to the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandate and for the racial tensions driven by the contentious departure of its only black tenured female professor in 2016. So they're getting uh, involved in a lot of these uh, social issues. They say nothing has revealed evangelicalism's uh, divisions more than President Trump's rise. If the white evangelical base uh, that for decades looked to Billy Graham for inspiration began to fracture as he aged, it flat-out splintered in the 2016 presidential primaries. Some of the faithful, they say, opted for more traditional representatives of the conservative social agenda, like Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush. Or Marco Rubio, but a large contingent of white, blue-collar, non-college-educated evangelicals. Uh, so they, <laughs> they have quite a descriptive uh, uh, a list there of, uh, of attributes uh, united around President Trump. And uh, so, of course, uh, they say once the top, once the top of the GOP ticket, Trump attracted new fundamentalist forces into an alliance with more traditional evangelicals, prosperity gospel, and Pentecostal pastors found political power attaching themselves to uh President Trump. So anyway, interesting to look at some of the different uh uh numbers there in terms of religion today and it still is a driving factor in uh politics. Uh, Billy Graham was very much involved in politics for many years and uh so still there's a lot of uh lot of religious uh, power in the uh in the politics of the land. So interesting to look at some of those uh numbers there. Here is a uh, write-up from Baltimore. This is uh, something that should be pretty alarming because, uh, obviously, we all use technology, and our emergency response systems are based on technology. We need to be able to have those functioning correctly. And then there's always the danger of them being hacked into. Um, This happened. This is from uh, Engadget. It says, Baltimore's 911 dispatch system was hacked last weekend. Baltimore's 911 dispatch system was hacked over the weekend, and authorities temporarily had to shut it down. Which, <laughs> knowing the crime rate and other things in Baltimore, that would be a, a really a, a major problem. The mayor's office confirmed to the Baltimore Sun that the system was digitally infiltrated early Saturday morning, but provided no other details while the investigation is ongoing. So they're keeping a lot of the details pretty quiet, but... Uh, they had to come out and say that it was, in fact, hacked, the 911 dispatch system. They say, we don't really know how this particular system was vulnerable to intrusion just yet. At least the fix wasn't uh, uh, onerous. City personnel identified a, quote, limited breach of the computer-aided dispatch that's known as the CAD, the C-A-D. And what that does is it automatically routes emergency requests to the dispatchers. And the department switched it to the manual mode, while the affected server was isolated and taken offline. Uh, what that means is that uh, instead of details of incoming callers seeking emergency support being relayed to dispatchers electronically, they were relayed by call center support staff manually. So they had to go back to doing it in a manual way. And thankfully, they had a backup system where they could have it the information manually relayed, or else it seems like they wouldn't have been able to get the information that they needed and let the... Uh, You know, the emergency personnel know where they needed to go, uh, you know, what they were heading into, those types of things. They say, while it's not an incident on the level of breaking into law enforcement arrest records or something like that, hacking a dispatch system compromises crucial civil infrastructure. An FBI spokesman told the Baltimore Sun that the agency was aware of the CAD breach and provided technical assistance. So that's a pretty serious situation uh, there in um, Baltimore, and it does just highlight the fact that that could happen other places as well. And they're they're looking into it and trying to figure out, I guess, who did it, why they did it, and uh, you know, if, if our emergency systems went offline, that would be a major problem, obviously. So, anyway, there's uh, some good write ups on the trumpet dot com about just uh, how dependent we are on technology, but. Within that, there is a certain danger to it being hacked or taken offline to where, you know, uh, we would be kind of sitting ducks in some cases, even even as far as the military is concerned. But then here in Baltimore, uh, the 911 system being shut down, at least they could go back and do it manually, but that may not always be the case. So interesting there from uh, Baltimore, and that was uh, from over the weekend. Uh, some other technology notes that are pretty uh, interesting. Uh, this uh, Cambridge Analytica whistleblower. You've probably seen him on uh, TV. I think he's got pink hair or something, dyed pink. So he he seems like a pretty smart guy. I I think the pink hair kind of maybe uh, cuts his credibility down a little bit. But anyway, he's a unique fellow. And uh, he's the uh, whistleblower that came out and talked about Cambridge Analytica and and Facebook and some of what they were doing in the last presidential uh, campaign. So this write-up is from PJ Media. And it's highlighting one thing about Facebook that there's some debate about this. Uh, Facebook able to listen to you at home and work. That's what the uh, Cambridge Analytica whistleblower is saying. He has some pretty apparently good insight into what goes on at Facebook, how it operates. So, again, there's debate whether this is happening or how it's being used. But it's worth probably considering the idea that Facebook can listen to you. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't I don't like that. I would not be comfortable with that. So he he was uh, speaking yesterday, and they were talking. They were he was uh, um, uh, they were trying to find out you know what it, what he had done with this Cambridge Analytica and, and Facebook. So he says uh, on a comment about using audio and processing audio, you can use it for my understanding generally of how companies use it, not just Facebook. So he's talking about a lot of companies here. But generally, other apps that pull audio is for environmental context. Uh, He said, so if, for example, you have a television playing versus if you're in a busy place with a lot of people talking versus a work environment, it's not to say they're listening to what you're saying exactly. It's not natural language processing. That would be hard to scale. But to understand the environmental context of where you are to improve the contextual value of the ad itself is possible. So that's a lot of uh, a lot of talking, I guess, and you get a little lost in that comment. But basically what he's saying is that, to his knowledge, Facebook, other companies, any app that you might have that can pull audio in, and of course phones and computers can pull audio in, I think we all know that, uh, that they listen to get a context of where you are so that they can send you ads that would be more personal and more specific. So they say, okay, can we hear a TV playing? Are they watching television? Uh, are they at work? Are they uh, with a group of friends? Or are they out at a busy cafe? And they can, they can get the context of where you are to send you advertisements that are targeted to you. Uh, what makes people obviously nervous about this, well, he says this uh, Cambridge Analytica whistleblower says they're not really listening to what people say. However, there's been uh, plenty of people that have said, "Well, I've never searched for, let's say, a bicycle on the internet or something, but I was talking about it to somebody, and all of a sudden I start getting ads for bicycles. And so they're saying, well how how did how did uh, Facebook or whoever how did they know to send me something about bicycles?" I never searched it. I mean, we've all had that experience where if we Google search something, um, a product of some kind, we're going to get ads. That uh, directly are related to that, but some people have said I, I never searched for the particular product or service, but I did talk about it to my friends, and then all of a sudden um, hear these ads come. So there is fear, uh, and I think ju- <laughs> it's justifiable to be a little bit afraid of this, that or a lot afraid of it. That uh, maybe Facebook and some other apps are actually listening to people. Uh, Facebook it says has long denied allegations that its app listens in on users in order to customize ads. So they deny it. Um, it's hard to say. I, I don't know, obviously, whether they're doing it or not. But people with inside info are saying, yeah, they um, they can listen. Uh, maybe not to what you're saying exactly, but if they can listen to get a context of where you are, they can obviously listen to what you're saying. I mean, how close do you sit to your phone? You know, it's usually in your pocket or it's in your hand or your computer or whatever you're using. I mean, we're in front of it. Often, and so uh, something to consider <laughs> again, that's just another example, I guess, of why we all want to be above reproach, but at the same time, you know personal conversations are personal, and nobody wants those to be public, so that it'll be interesting to see uh, exactly what's going on there, and they they're not uh they're not saying for sure that the those apps do listen, but uh, it could very well happen. Uh, China is not as uh, secretive about it in terms of what they're doing with their technology. We talked about this a while back, and it's been on the Trumpet Hour, too. But uh, China is using now artificial intelligence and facial recognition. So if you're walking down the street in a Chinese uh, city, they are going to get facial recognition for a variety of things, including now they're going to find jaywalkers via text. So here in the U.S., you may have had this before, certain uh, interstates, if you're going over, a, a, say, a toll road of some kind, a turnpike, um, and if you don't have uh, the proper pass but you go through this other lane, they'll send you the bill right and it's actually kind of convenient because it's easier just to pay the bill later than to stop and try to haggle with the money so but they know who you are they've got obviously the um your license plate and they scan it and they uh, send you the bill so that's happened to me before it's actually kind of convenient i didn't uh you know it's like i said it's easier than pulling over and paying but uh but China now is using this for facial recognition. So uh, if you jaywalk, <laughs> they're going to text you <laughs> and say, oh, by the way, you know, you owe us money. Traffic authorities in the Chinese city of Shenzhen have teamed up with an artificial intelligence firm named uh, Intellifusion to carry out the rather dystopian policing, reports the South China Morning Post. Already traffic police in the city have been using Intellifusion software and cameras to identify passing jaywalkers and project their faces and identifying information on large screens located near the intersections for all to see. So you get publicly shamed if <laughs> for for jaywalking as well. That's pretty bad. I mean that's that's uh that's really pretty scary actually. It says, but now IntelliFusion is taking its surveillance a step further, so they're going even further with it. The company is partnering with social media platforms, including WeChat. In Cinna Welbo, I'm not familiar with those, Uh, and local mobile phone carriers so it can text jaywalkers the second they offend. Police will also have the option of delivering a ticket and fine on the spot for people who are picked up by the AI system for repeat offenses. So if you jaywalk once, you're going to get publicly shamed apparently on the monitor and they're going to text you that we know you jaywalked uh, and that's your warning, I guess. And then if you do it again, you're going to get a fine. So you're not going to have a lot of jaywalkers in China, I bet. That's amazing. I mean, it's amazing that they can do that. And as it says, it's pretty dystopian. I mean, uh, to, to know that people are watching you all the time. And the second you jaywalk, you are uh, going to be caught. And I wonder I wonder how uh, precise it is. Like, do you have to be completely off the crosswalk? What about one foot off the crosswalk? What if somebody shoves you off the crosswalk? I mean, you know, there's lots of things that could happen there. And uh, so this technology is going to catch you immediately. Uh, pretty nerve-wracking, I, I think, because what else could they do with it? That's always a question, say, whether it's do certain apps listen to you. Here in China, they have facial recognition. Uh, what do they do with it? What, when in the history of man has technology ever developed, you know, in a way like this to where, uh, and then they stop using it and say, no, that's, that's far enough. We don't want to take it to the next level. That never happens. Everything always goes to, like, the furthest extreme. And usually it's used because people want some sort of power. They want to stay in power, be in power. And uh, so it, it, is, it is pretty nerve-wracking. Uh, but anyway, so if you're in China, <laughs> be careful. Uh, don't jaywalk because you're going to get uh, caught immediately. Speaking of China, they are very, very busy. This was mentioned briefly on the Trumpet Daily radio show this morning. Andrew Loker was uh, taking care of that program today. Make sure you listen for that coming up in a bit. But he did mention this one in passing. Uh, It's from Newsweek. China holds massive war drills at sea, and photos show what makes these different. So China's been very active. They've increased their military budget by at least 8% this year, although some people think it's even higher. But China has begun conducting massive maritime combat drills, including dozens of vessels mobilized in the South China Sea as part of what the military said would be bigger and more frequent exercises in the tense region. So if uh, you have the map in your head of that area, you know the South China Sea There, it's a major port. Uh, I think the numbers, I think it's over $5 trillion of uh, goods travel through there every year. And China, of course, has been going out there and making these artificial islands and uh, because they're taking over the area. And they're going to own that Seagate, and the, which, in, in effect, they pretty much already do. And just to make sure everybody knows it, now they're having all these military drills in that region. So they're obviously sending a message that they, they own that South China Sea. It says, while the uh, Chinese Navy announced days ago it would begin training in the South China Sea, Recent satellite imagery gathered by Planet Labs revealed Tuesday an unusually large formation of warships that included China's first aircraft carrier, the Type 001 uh, Lianning, if I said that correctly. Apologies to the uh, Chinese speakers. The uh, vessel, a refurbished uh, uh, Russian-class aircraft carrier, was seen last week sailing near China's rival government on the island of Taiwan. Uh, So obviously that's an intimidation tactic, right? If you want to intimidate your neighbor, you uh, float an aircraft carrier right past them. Nope, just having some more drills, nothing to see out here. So they're very specific in what they're doing. And they say this, these uh, drills throw a serious weight behind Chinese President Xi Jinping's vow to take the territory back by force. So it's no mystery what China is trying to do. Uh, it's an incredible picture, Jeffrey Lewis, a leading defense expert at the California-based Middlebury Institute of Strategic Studies, told Reuters which obtained the images exclusively. And so if you go and you check out any of these write-ups, you can see the satellite imagery there. Uh, that's the big news to me, confirmation that, yes, the carrier participated in the exercise, uh, Jeffrey Lewis said. The South China Sea and East China Sea will be primary battlegrounds. The uh, People's Liberation Army is committed to being battle-ready through simulated combat training. And that's according to a Chinese military analyst, uh, and they reported that to the Global Times. The 2018 drills will be routine and will be held every month, unlike previous years. So they're going to be out there every month doing these. And what does that mean exactly? Just once a month, several times a month, every week? You know, Are they just going to permanently stay put with some of their military there? Hard to say, but in previous years, they usually had the drills only in the spring and in the autumn. But they're going to be doing them every month now. So we you start adding all these things up. Okay, Xi Jinping is leader for life now. He's you know, said that they're going to uh you know keep China together and they're going to bring in some of these other areas. Uh they they're militarizing the South China Sea, having these drills. They're increasing their military spending by over eight percent at least. Uh there are definitely becoming more aggressive. China's military, it says, has undergone widespread reforms and has been rapidly enhancing its war fighting prowess under the mandate of Xi <clears throat> who was unanimously reelected last week of course he was re- reelected him and uh, his friend Vladimir Putin they're always unanimously reelected although i think uh what did they say Vladimir Putin only got 75% so somebody didn't like him apparently but they didn't want to make it too obvious i guess uh the the uh, the abolition of the presidential term limits are of course what happened recently allowing Xi to be a leader for life Days later, Xi told The Gathering, uh, any attempt to split up China was doomed to failure, a reference to Taiwan. And then, of course, here not long after that, they float their aircraft carrier right by Taiwan. And uh, Taiwan was founded as a separatist government after nationalist leaders fled a 1949 communist uh, victory in the mainland. So uh, he is definitely uh, expanding his reach, Xi Jinping is, into the South China Sea and beyond and letting everybody know about it so they're having these military drills to uh to uh show the world what they can do i guess it's just like uh animals in the jungle right Where they want to walk the lions walk by and sort of see who's the tougher one and who <laughs> who's going to be the intimidator and then mankind we have our uh, military drills to show who is the tougher and uh, how serious they are about the some of those areas. So anyway, really interesting there in China. One other note from China, this is from the Daily Mail, and you probably have heard a fair bit about this. Uh, North Korea, just they just had a meeting with China. They sh- he showed up, Kim Jong-un, he showed up in this green train, this uh, mystery train, So, which I'd, I'd be fascinated to see what it's like on there. Kim Jong-un uh, did, in fact, go to Beijing to meet China's President Xi in his first ever overseas trip as leader as far as what they know anyway, and says he's now willing to meet President Trump after the, quote, successful talks. So why did he go to China first? You know, you don't have to be a real sharp analyst to realize uh, that China uh, really pulls a lot of the strings there in North Korea, if not all of them. And uh, so he goes and he meets with President Xi and then says, oh, you know, um, yeah, I'd be happy to meet with President Trump now. Probably got his marching orders. Uh, Beijing confirmed that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un made a visit to China. Kim traveled uh, with his wife and held successful talks at a banquet with Xi. (laughs) Of course, they were successful because Xi tells them what to do, Uh, at least on some level. The North Korean leader said he was willing to hold talks with the United States. Uh, He also said he was committed to denuclearization, uh, which is quite the word, on the Korean Peninsula. A train from North Korea arrived in Beijing amid heavy security on Monday. White House said President Trump received a private message from Xi about the meeting. So uh, North Korea showing their hand to some extent, uh, showing who the real power in the region is. And of course, it's China and Russia right there with them. And that uh, we have a great book about that: Russia and China, Russia and China in prophecy. There at thetrumpet.com that you need to look at. It gives a great overview as to what's happening uh, in those uh, areas and what you can expect to see happen in the future. And they're they're working together, Russia, China. You throw in some of these other rogue states, North Korea and others, and um, they have really quite a power base that they are developing there. And so it's it's worth paying attention to. And uh, and of course also there's a, a lot of write-ups about an Asian-European mart of nations that freezes the U.S. out of uh, economic opportunities. So uh, you have to really pay attention to what's going on in these different uh, power blocks. Very uh, fascinating stuff. Well, there's, of course, a lot of protests going on here in the United States. Uh, It seems like there's always a new movement or a continuation of a movement every few weeks or months or something happens and then people get out there and protest again. And out in Sacramento, now California, they're having protests. This is uh, right up. This says protesters uh, call for justice for Stephon Clark. Again, forces lockdown of Kings Arena. That's where the NBA team plays, the Sacramento Kings. They're not very good this year, so maybe maybe it's not uh, causing as much uh, problems as they would like. I don't know how many people are going to those games, but in any event, it's a big draw. A lot of people like to go down and uh, check out those professional contests. So they're out there uh, forcing the lockdown of the arena. And uh, it was the second time in a week, protesters blocked the entrances to Golden One Center and prevented thousands of fans from entering a Sacramento Kings game in an effort to continue calling for action by local officials following the police killing of Stephon Clark. They don't really define what action is, other than I think they want the two officers fired We're not, and it's it's a racial issue, of course, on some level. Uh, one of the officers was black, so it really shouldn't be a racial issue but but uh, it seems to be that way and uh, so I think they they want those two officers that shot Stefan Clark. they want him, or they want them uh, fired and then even prosecuted. so that's what people are calling for, and then beyond that, you know, would that appease the crowd. If we threw, you know, threw the officers to the crowd, would it appease them? You know, probably not. But they're calling for action. Uh, Members of the Kings and Boston Celtics came out for Sunday's game dressed in warm-up shirts bearing Clark's name on the back and the phrase, accountability, we are one, on the front. You know, it's, it's amazing how there's a little bit of pressure here from some protesters. And then the NBA teams have to jump in and they support, you know, this guy that got killed. And and uh, you know again, where's the truth of the story? There was a trumpet brief from last week talking about this. You really need to to see it's still at thetrumpet.com, just about some of the facts of this case. I mean, it's what are they supporting? They're supporting breaking and entering into cars, uh, breaking into homes because that's what the individual was doing. Now it's unfortunate he got shot and killed, but I mean, uh, he was breaking the law and seemed to have a history of doing so. And uh, even his uh, his grandmother came out. They had a press conference, and his grandmother was emotional, as you would expect. But uh, she was saying, well, why don't they just shoot him in the leg or something? Uh, she didn't say anything about him being innocent of crimes, but she just didn't want him to be shot and killed. So anyway, but, the, you know, you have to read all the details of the story. He he wouldn't respond to the police and what they said, and he pointed a cell phone at him. Of course, it's in the middle, or it's late at night. They couldn't, you know, somebody points something at you. Um Obviously that that's a threat in some level so anyway there's a lot more details about the story and you can read about that on the uh, that trumpet brief from last week but uh, so anyway the NBA players come out and they're they're supporting this guy that got killed and they also recorded a, a brief public service announcement calling for accountability and unity that played on the jumbotron before the start of the game and and this press conference too where his, his grandmother was talking about you know maybe they could have shot him somewhere else um, yeah, uh, you know there was uh, somebody else I was speaking, and they they added this this guy's name, Stephon Clark, to the other ones that have been in the media. You know the the Trayvon Martins, the um, uh, Michael Brown, and these other ones. Where again, that that's all playing into this narrative of there being supposedly this police brutality. But but in every case, at least the names that that were mentioned, those those guys were all attacking officers. Or you know, breaking laws and were a threat, but yet they're they're held up like they were just doing nothing that they were innocent. So this this whole narrative keeps going and going. Uh, and then also, uh, his brother Stefan Clark's brother interrupted a uh, city council meeting, and grabbed the mic and started swearing at people and and, br- and and brought the meeting to a standstill. They had to close it actually. So you can kind of see where the spirit of this is going, and it's not in good direction. Uh, CNN said that residents poured into the Sacramento City Council meeting chanting uh, Stefan Clark, the name of the unarmed black man who was shot and killed uh, by police earlier this month. So they were chanting his name. And, of course, they say he was unarmed. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they found that out later, I guess. It says in a meeting Tuesday to discuss the shooting, protesters stood on top of the information desk to lead the crowd in calls for justice. And if you see the video or the pictures, you know, they, um, it was pretty rowdy. Residents at the meeting expressed outrage at the police killing. Uh, the meeting adjourned two and a half hours early, after the city's mayor said he couldn't guarantee the safety of the attendees. So there's a lot of anger in those crowds. Uh, could become violent, I suppose. It's certainly a violent spirit, and there's there's nobody's looking for like a peaceful resolution. Um, I don't I don't even know that there needs to be anything said other than well, follow the law, and you'll probably be fine. You know, you have to go back and read that trumpet brief. The numbers that are brought out there, as far as people getting shot, unarmed people, uh, and particularly young black men, it's very low, very, very low. You have a better chance of getting hit by lightning, statistically, than getting shot by an officer. But you would think that, uh, you know, it's it's this national uh, uh, scourge that's just hitting every city, and that's not the case. Uh, At one point in this meeting, Clark's brother uh, interrupted the meeting by marching to the front of the chamber. He was wearing headphones, by the way. Uh, which is just bizarre. Jumping on top of the the uh, the desks they had there in front of the mayor and chanting his brother's name, he urged the crowd to get louder. And then he he uh, standing in front of the council chambers, he said, "The mayor and the city of Sacramento has failed all of you." Well, that what are they looking for? Peace? I mean, what are they looking What are they looking for here? This seems uh, very violent in terms of the spirit of it and and where it's uh, heading. And uh, one of the the Sacramento uh, minister uh, was speaking at this uh, meeting, and he said, "Uh, I grew up in a city, and he he was stirring the crowd up, you know. He said, I grew up in a city and in a neighborhood where grandma's backyard was a sacred place. I could play in grandma's yard. I could learn in grandma's yard. Sometimes I got a switch in my grandma's backyard, but I never, ever thought I would die in my grandma's backyard. He's referencing the fact that uh, Stefan Clark got shot in his grandmother's backyard. And, uh, I mean, the, yeah, it's nice to play in your grandma's backyard, but it has nothing to do with this case. It's just stirring up <laughs> the uh, emotion. I mean, can you commit a bunch of crimes and then go hide in your grandma's backyard? Uh, it, it makes no difference where you are. If you're breaking the law, you know, you're going to have penalties of some kind. And so, anyway, uh, a lot of emotion, things really being stirred up. And we'll see how that progresses. There's there's a lot of good write-ups at thetrumpet.com about where you can expect to see these things go, uh, based on Bible prophecy. And um, just to cut to the short of it, it's not good. It's not good because uh, there's a lot of uh, hatred in the cities towards law, towards authority, towards the police. Um, I, I've never, I can't ever recall a story, and maybe it's happened, but I cannot recall a story of somebody obeying the law, being respectful to officers, and being shot dead. I just can't remember one. And it could have happened accidentally or something could have happened. But, you know, in every case, there's always a law being broken and things escalate. And then, of course, a lot of emotion, a lot of anger after the fact. So you have that going on in California. And, of course, we've seen that in other states. By the way, I mean, if you look at the numbers for last year, uh, lots of police have been killed. Lots of them ambushed. Uh, There's a lot of hatred out there. And... Uh, So that just continues to escalate. Uh, And then, of course, there's the gun uh, debates. This is from Reuters. It says, no more or we vote you out. Students lead huge U.S. US anti-gun rallies. In some of the biggest U.S. youth demonstrations for decades, they say, since probably the 60s and 70s, protesters called on lawmakers and President Donald Trump to confront the issue. Again, it's sort of uh, ambiguous. Confront it. I mean, what do you want to do? Repeal the Second Amendment? I don't. That's not a good idea. Voter registration activists fanned out in the crowd, signing up thousands of the nation's newest voters. They say um, some people. I think NBC reported there were eight hundred thousand people at these marches, but the actual number was two hundred thousand, give or take. So, pretty inflated numbers, but still a lot of people out there. And um, they were getting the crowd riled up, of course, and speaking. and And one of the young uh, uh, students, a seventeen-year-old junior. At Marjorie Stoneman Douglas told the crowd that uh, politicians either represent the people or get out, stand with us, or be where the voters are coming. Uh, I don't think she's factoring in the fact that uh, quite a few voters do support the Second Amendment and don't agree with her. So, <laughs> But what they're saying is you're either going to do what we want or there's going to be problems. And so, the, again, a really uh, emotional, very violent spirit. And what about it? What about demonstration and demonstrators and all these things that they're doing? Well, this is uh, something that was sent in from a listener, which I think is really a great write-up. And it was uh, in the Plain Truth magazine in June 1968, which, uh, of course, was the heat of some of the issues there in the 1960s. You had protests against the Vietnam War, you name it. And it says... um, Here is the full text of a letter received from a young demonstrator and admitted, quote, defiant of established authority. It says, read this candid letter and uh, uh, complete answers to his arguments from your own Bible. So uh, we don't have time to go through all of it, but we'll we'll go through some of the points they are really interesting. And uh, the write-up says, for years I have heard the arguments of hippies, demonstrators, draft card burners, and dropouts, that they are mimicking such famous world personages as Mohammed, Gandhi, Buddha, George Washington, or even Jesus Christ. The vast chunk of the nation has new ideas. Keep in mind, this is late 60s, but boy, it sure applies today. This vast chunk of the nation has uh, new ideas, these younger people, Uh, new goals and purposes, new, quote, standards of conduct. The results of a permissive age of the baby doctors, child psychologists, and new moralists uh, who have instilled an almost religious dedication to rebellion in the youth of the nation. Uh, you know, when you look at, say, anti-police protests, when you when you look at these uh, March for Our Lives uh, protesters, I mean, what, what do you see? Uh, you see rebellion. They want to rebel, and that's the spirit of it not following law, not following order, they're going to shout you down. The, you know, the guy, the brother of the man that was killed in Sacramento, he's going to take over a meeting and tell everybody to shut up, and he's going to, he's going to insult everyone and stand on the desk. So are you, going to, are you going to have a good conversation with somebody like that? I don't think so. It says, Today's youthful generation has been encouraged to, quote, think for itself, uh, to question, to evaluate established traditions, and to find their own new standards of conduct. And of course, that's always being led by somebody behind the scenes. It's never just the young people themselves. And then it says, enter the student draft card burner, enter the military anti-militant, the militantly anti-military, the peace-loving cop hater, the enraged, demonstrating, sometimes violent advocate of nonviolence. Just such great insight. I mean, isn't that exactly what you see? People that they're the peace-loving cop haters. How can you be both, right? The enraged, demonstrating, sometimes violent advocate of nonviolence, right? Even in the, the young people that are marching against uh, the Second Amendment, really, or at least they want some sort of gun restriction, they're, are, they're the most militant people I see around as far as their at least emotion at this point. Uh, even even uh, a couple days ago, there was a student protest, and the, the kids were chanting, uh, NRA, how many kids have you killed today? Can you believe that? The NRA doesn't kill any kids. The, who killed the kids? Other kids. <laughs> the other kids did it. They used a weapon in some cases, but it was other kids. It was their peers that did it in the cases that, that they're protesting. But they're, they're, bl- they're blaming people that had nothing to do with it. It's very militant and uh, stirring up a lot of hatred. And uh, this write-up says, Never in the history of mankind has a whole society found itself oppressed to such extremes by its youth. Do you feel that way today? Uh, Are the youth oppressing the nation? I think so. It says youthful pranks have given way to serious and often brutal crimes. And then it gets into some statistics from back then where there was a lot of teen crime. It says never before have we witnessed our major universities rocked by violence. Again, this is back in the 60s. Uh, The traditional tranquility of study and research shattered by enraged anarchists staging sit-ins, teach-ins, And literal occupation of administrative offices, defying the police, the university officials, and all of society in so doing, and we see, you know, flavors of that today. They might do it sort of in different ways, but they're doing the same sort of thing. Uh, It says, "Who are these loud, insistent, rebellious youths? Why do they fly into enraged disorder and chaos to air their grievances? Is that not what we see today?" Do you not see enrage, disorder, and chaos to air their grievances? Uh, It's like a temper tantrum. It says, what are their standards? What do they want? What is their goal? They are the products of an age, products of permissive homes, uh, if you can find a home today, uh, in a permissive society. They're victims, actually, of a satanic deception that has come to pervade the entirety of the educational system in the English-speaking world. That great deception is the assumed theory of evolution. So why does that matter? You know What does that have to do with protest? Well, it has a lot to do with it, because as it says here, the assumed theory of evolution says that there's no God. And when you say that, you're saying there is no ultimate authority. There's no great lawgiver, no great creator and ruler in the heavens who made all force, law, energy, and who made mankind and uh, put him on the earth for a specific purpose. Once you do, do away with God, you have no lawgiver. So you go out and you just do what you want. You do what you think is right. And that's what we have happening in uh, a lot of the different communities here in the United States. It says, once that false faith is assumed, and of course it is a faith, the, the theory of evolution, it's an easy step to the second major false step. And today, much of education is based on the teaching of the new moralists of situational ethics. No need, or sorry, no deed, action, or thought is good or bad in itself, they insist, but must be decided by the individual based on individual circumstances, whether it is good or bad for him or her personally. So this is written in 1968. You know, you can follow the trail down to 2018 where we are today, and it's it's far worse. You know, the things that they were dealing with then, very bad, but now we have a continuation, and it's worse in a lot of cases. And the write-up says, but the justification for riot can take many bizarre forms. Uh, People justify it, the the protesting. It says, most use the situational ethics excuse or the new morality learned from their uh, professors. But many others are heard to even cite Christ himself as their example. And, of course, back then, uh, maybe even today still, I don't know that this is as popular, but many hippies even claim that Christ was the first hippie in history. Maybe you've heard that before. And the author says, I received a letter recently from a young student demonstrator who was upset about the teaching that the plain truth was giving at the time, uh, saying that, uh, you know, there was rebellion and this, this was a uh, youth culture was not heading in a good direction. And so one of the young people that was a protester wrote a letter in and said, uh, you know, that they didn't agree. So here's some of what that student wrote. And this again was from uh, 1968. It says, I've just listened to your lecture from April 20th on uh, this particular radio station. It says, in that lecture, you attacked college students who demonstrate and practice civil disobedience. You seemed particularly disturbed by students who disobey laws made by the majority and uh, and then holler police brutality. Uh, After accusing the students of disobeying laws and then hollering police brutality, you said that the students learned this from their uh, college professors. And the, the person writing in says, I am one of the students who sits in, demonstrates, defies the established authority, and disobeys the law. But I disobey only when the law does not deserve obedience or when the civil law is contrary to my moral principles. And then it goes on to say quite a few other things. But I think that's kind of the heart of the letter. And uh, so as is written in The Plain Truth about that, it says, Notice this student admits he sits in, demonstrates, defies the established authority, and disobeys the law. So he admits it. I'm a lawbreaker. I mean, even, even the fellow that just got shot out in Sacramento. I mean, no one's saying he didn't break laws. They're just ignoring that fact. But the write up says, but then he says he disobeys, quote, only when the law does not deserve obedience or when contrary to my moral principles. And that's really the same today, isn't it? Uh, you'll have people protesting laws in this country and look like the you know, the Second Amendment of the Constitution, the right to bear arms and so forth. And they'll say, well, it doesn't deserve obedience or it's, uh, you know, it's out of fashion now. We should do something else or it's contrary to my moral principles. But they're getting away from the rule of law and getting into just situational ethics. Well, it's my principles. It's what I think about it. And of course, the problem with that, besides it just being very, very uh, ripe for error in judgment, is that, I mean, how many people are on this earth? Everyone's got their own opinion on things. And uh, so what do you have? That's why we have wars. That's why we have violence, because everyone has their own opinion. A country has its own take, its own opinion. Another country has their opinion, their take on things. Well, if everyone followed one law, you wouldn't have problems. There wouldn't be the wars. There wouldn't be the protesting in the streets. But because of the fact that people are looking at uh, their own moral principles uh, or thinking they can disobey laws when they don't deserve to be obeyed in their opinion, well, that's what we have, and that's what, uh, that's what this uh, Plain Truth write-up from 1968 shows. And it continues and says, but what is a sit-in talking about? You remember, of course, the sit-ins. I don't know that they do that as much. I guess in some ways uh, that protest there in Sacramento is sort of a sit-in. It says, sitting in is the occupation of public or private property by persons who openly flout the personal rights of others. It involves the virtual invasion and occupation of public restaurants, housing facilities, transportation facilities, university classrooms, dormitories, administrative buildings, or any other such area, or shutting down a NBA basketball game, standing out in front, not letting people in. It says, as such, it constitutes an invasion of privacy. See, it's breaking law to the owners and operators of any service. The defying of occupancy laws, closing times, curfews, or any other regulations in colleges and uh, university buildings or other places. So the protesters, they're breaking the law, but they say, well, it doesn't matter because we have a point that needs to be heard. So it's okay that we break all these other laws to get our point across. But the write-up says sitting in has become an almost casually taken-for-granted term uh, in our lawless, defiant society. But notice this point, and this is a great, great point. It says, but rest assured, if this young student who wrote this letter were to find some opposing group sitting in his dormitory or his classroom that he wished to attend, his attitude towards sitting in may not prove to be quite so liberal, would it? So what about the protesters out in front of, say, a a basketball game? What if a counter group showed up and said, we're going to be here first. We're not going to let you protest here because we're sitting in on your sit-in or your stand-in or whatever. Well, what would you have? Would they be, oh, that's fine, that's your right, you know, that's no problem, we'll move across the street here. No, they'd say, well, uh, what we have to say is more important than what you have to say. And then what would you have? Well, we've seen that, and it breaks into rioting and fighting and attacking each other, verbally and sometimes even physically. And so uh, it's a great point for for the people that think it's fine to go around and protest and make a big to-do about things. Well, what about the counter-opinion? Are you going to let them also have their say? You know, is it going to be a civil discussion? Of course not. And so it's, it's really bullying tactics. And uh, so this write-up says, Notice, too, this young man stated he disobeys, talking about this, this letter that was written in, but only when the law is contrary to his own personal moral principles. This is nothing short of personal anarchy. You know, it's, it's really every individual pretending that they're God that they themselves are god that they can their their ideas their laws their own thinking is what is the most important and of course then people band together right and they find somebody that has a similar thought to them and they say well our ideas are more important than the other groups ideas but of course that's that's not the rule of law where everyone follows the same law that's just rule of uh, well it's not rule it's anarchy and ultimately, it's a, it's a dictatorship. Look at the dictators in history. They didn't follow law. They followed their own law. They made their own law. They did what they wanted because they had the power to do it. And they got away from the rule of law. They didn't follow the law. They might make people follow a law, but they wouldn't follow it. And so that's what you have with these um, protesters. They're not going to follow any laws. They're going to they're gonna riot and get their ideas across. And as these young people in some of these um, marches are saying, well, you're going to get with us or you're going to get out. Really? There's no rule of law there. Uh, it says, this is nothing. This right it from The Plain Truth from 1968 about the protest says, there is no, this is nothing short of personal anarchy. It is the setting up of oneself as the judge, the legislator, and the majority of one to arbitrarily decide which law is right, which law is wrong, and thus elevate oneself above the law. They decide. They'll decide which laws to keep or which, which law should be a law but it's not. This is becoming a law unto yourself. Still, it's the precise reasoning, whether based on fanciful notions about Christianity, I don't know that anyone even points back to that anymore, but they they used to, maybe some still do, or the blind faith in evolution and the no absolutes, anything goes, and situational ethics of a modern God-rejecting world. The young man who wrote the letter is an admitted lawbreaker and defiant of civil authority, but it just depends on which laws happen to conform to his personal moral principles. And so uh, really, really an interesting write-up. And then it go, there's a lot more than, than we can get into today, but it goes in it does talk about Christ. Okay, how did he live his life? Uh, if, if people claim to be a Christian, okay, so how did Christ live his life? What did he do? Uh, and it gives plenty of examples of how he lived, and this is a great time of year to really focus on that. Uh, The write-up says Jesus was never guilty of any treason. He set the example of being an obedient taxpayer to the Roman government. You can see that in Matthew 22. He was courteous to the point of healing a Roman officer's servant, Matthew 8, and in no case ever committed any act which would have been construed as treasonous. He was always kind, patient, loving, forgiving, and understanding. He sincerely regretted the violent uh, actions of uh, those that were attacking him. You know, he was killed, obviously, and even prayed for them, even when he was dying on the stake. And he asked, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you see any forgiveness in the protesters on the streets? Even if even if something was done wrong, even if there was an accident, or maybe there is something that needs to change, do you see forgiveness? You don't see any forgiveness. You see vengeance, and that's a dangerous, dangerous road to go down. God says vengeance is his. Doesn't say it belongs to the mob. And of course, uh, Christ, he didn't live that way. Uh, he was never, it says, in his entire lifetime, a defiant. He was never defiant. He followed his father, obviously. He uh, followed the rules of the land. He was never defiant. He uh, had a marvelous example of humility and love and obedience. And anybody that tries to twist that, of course, is, is uh, not understanding the scriptures. And uh it says, "But what is a Christian? It is one who has been converted and has received the spirit of God, and a lot of scriptural references are given there in this write up to get it, but we don't have time to get into that and uh but he he uh uh Christ set us that example of how to live. That's the example that we're supposed to follow, and that's you can see that in first peter two twenty one he's that perfect example he was not out there uh getting involved in protesting and rioting. He never did that. It says, a Christian is one who is totally disconnected with the movements, demonstrations, riots, and politics of this world. You know, true Christians are not involved in that. They're involved in uh, supporting God's uh, way and, of course, God's kingdom ultimately. Uh, And it says, first and foremost, and of prime importance, a Christian is one who is led by the Spirit of God. So you can read all about the uh, fruits of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, and... uh, you can then take a look and just just watch the news, watch the protesters, and watch the riots. Do you see any of those fruits out there? Uh, long suffering, patience, etc., etc. Do you do you see things like that? Uh, do you see people living like Christ lived? Uh, you don't. It just doesn't. We don't see it out there today. And uh, and so, really, there's a lot to look at when you see all these protests and these riots. And I think people get caught up in, uh, you know, maybe some of the. The laws, well, should this be a law, or should that be a law, or should they change the laws? Well, what about just the overall attack against law in general and and just the spirit of the the protests and the violence and the anger and the threatenings you don't find that you don't find that in christ 's example, and so there's there's plenty of examples more given here about how Christ was. Uh, you know, he did follow the rule of the land as, um, and he, he, you know, he was even killed and he didn't resist. He didn't protest it. Of course it was for God's plan, but, uh, you can go through and read, um, his example. And that really gives us, um, uh, a great, a great, uh, goal to reach toward and we're supposed to, but, uh, you know, Christ was not out there involved in these types of uh, things. So really great write-up I thought it was very interesting to look at, and we really appreciate that being sent in from a listener because it really does hit on all of the main points, I think, of uh, the time that we're in today. And uh, we see far more uh, an expansion of the, the problems and the difficulties that they had in 1968 there that the Plain Truth was commenting on. It's even worse today. So there's, a, there's just a lot to, to look at there, and that was an old... Uh, uh write-up from The Plain Truth, and of course The Trumpet has quite a few uh, good write-ups about uh, the current events that you see happening. Uh, the Trumpet Hour program is coming up today as well. Make sure you listen for that. There's some great write-ups about, or some great audio in there about uh, even what's happening in this country by looking at the book 1984, and so that ties in as well with some of uh, these movements and these protests, and that's uh, coming up here in a bit on uh, Trumpet Radio, so make sure you listen for that. I want to get a chance uh, to do so. That is uh, all the time that we have for today here on Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for uh, joining myself, Dwight Falk, uh, and make sure you listen for the Key of David program and the Trumpet Daily Radio Show, also the Trumpet Hour. That's all coming up here in just a bit. Uh, Have a great rest of your day, and we will talk to you tomorrow. You're listening to Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.